The guests on Love Hurts occasionally use some adult language and go into some more intense subject matter, but that's kind of how real life works anyway. This is Love Hurts. I'm Brian Berlin. Today's guest is Carla Katz. Carla is a comic and storyteller living in Hoboken. Carla left for college at a young age and found herself falling for a mentor. They had an affair that led to Carla questioning where she was going in her life and ended up changing everything, only to connect with him years later. Hey, Carla, how's it going? It's good. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this and taking the time and figuring out audio issues. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, virtual life. Yes, the new game every time we do anything now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, uh, what did you want to come on and talk about today? Um, My my very earliest broken heart. Um, It starts when I was 17. Um, I had gone to college early instead of my last year of high school when I was 16. And I went to a community college. So real college at Boston University didn't start until my sophomore year. And I was 17. And I was really overwhelmed with the size and the crazy gigantic dorm that I was in. And the place that was like the respite of calm for me was the work study job I had at the Hillel. (laughs) <laughs> and the Hillel was was run by this guy, Sherman, who was incredibly smart, incredibly handsome. Um, and I, I always had this sort of vision in my head that every conversation sort of felt like this cerebral colonoscopy <laughs> of sorts, you know, because he would ask you these like rapid fire questions and tell wild stories about and and unbelievable name dropping all these sort of mysterious people mysterious places that i felt like i should know but i didn't but i pretended to know um and he didn't really notice me but i paid attention when he held court um and i learned all these things about him i learned that he was an olympic saber fencer that he was an award winning npr journalist he was like a strategic advisor to the Israeli government. He'd been a sniper. He was a child of a Holocaust survivor. I mean, the list was endless. Travels in the desert. Um, And I would like write things down and go back to my dorm room and do this kind of weird post-mortem where I would look (laughs) look things up. And, you know, I always thought of myself as smart and I was sort of the smart one in our family uh, really until I met him. And he was the first person I met that I sort of in my mind decided was like a a real genius. Um, Yeah. So there was something that was like, oh, this guy is challenging me in a new way that I haven't felt before. And this is exciting to be pushed by somebody. 100%. It was just, you know, it was exciting. He was exciting. He's incredibly charismatic and he just exudes that, you know, he's one of those people that just sort of naturally draws a crowd. Um, And so I really tried to think of all the different ways to get his attention. But, you know, in that 
you know, he's twice as old as, as me, literally in this moment. Okay. And, and he's, he's, uh, you know, an important person at the, at the university, but <clears throat> I started to do things to try and get his attention. Like I, uh, he said something about you, that he used to draw. And so I bought him charcoals and drawing paper. And he said that he used to, uh, play the guitar. And so I bought him guitar strings and like, I couldn't even, I was dirt poor. I could not even afford like those little things, but, um, it kind of was like everything to me to like see him smile. Right. And it made me feel like somehow I was powerful that I could make this powerful guy smile. And then a few days, you know, and this is going on through the semester and, a few days after I gave him the guitar strings, when I came in, he handed me this piece of paper and it was in his, his handwriting, which is really distinctive. Um, and it said, Carla for a, like a wild, said for Carla, like a wildflower at the top. And it was a poem. And he asked me if I would just read it like out loud <laughs> to him. And so he's like watching me and I'm like turning every shade of pink. Um, and and is there this was a poem that he wrote for you or was well, like- that's, that's actually what I assumed. Yeah. Um, but I was actually disappointed to find out later that they weren't actually his words. Okay. That it was the translation of a, a Hebrew song called Kmot Semach Bar. Um, but I still like consoled myself with this idea that he actually hand wrote yeah, it yeah. out. And there was this verse that got me, which was, I'll read it to you. I still recall a glance, a gentle hand that kindled fire. You will recall a shadow passing in your fields, a secret no one knows. And now farewell. No, I grew here in your midst, a wildflower. So like that just like, killed me, you know? And I was like, well, what is he implying? Like I went back to my room, I like read it. And in my, you know, blown up fantasy, it was this like grand love. Right. And that, um, you know, the rational part of me knew that like to him, I was this sort of unformed child, but you know, the, my heart was sort of wrapped up in this fantasy that he was in love with me. And, you know, the alternative was that he was making fun of me or something. I had no idea where this was going. Um, but the next day we're both at the Hillel and, uh, we were putting together this Holocaust film festival and out of nowhere, he sort of asked me if I would give him a haircut. And <laughs> I must've mentioned that I cut hair. My, I come from a family of barbers, on my dad's side and I learned to cut hair when I was young. So I was like, yes, oh my God, you know, I'm going to get to touch him. Like that's, that's amazing. Um, and he had scissors. He like handed me a, a, like a raggedy towel so I could put it around his neck. Um, and I was anxious to do it, but I was also worried that I could like totally fuck it up and, you know, make him look worse and you know, that he would hate me. But uh, you know, he, he used to sit in this like wooden captain's chair at his desk. And so he just turned it around and put the towel around his neck. And, you know, he chattered on about the film festival while I've got my 
hands in his hair. And I was like really lost then in the fantasy that like I would be his like permanent barber and his, his like his lover. And, you know, I asked him uh, to turn around so he could face me so I could cut his bangs. And when he turned the chair, he like reached up with both hands and he cradled my face and he pulled me down for a kiss. Wow. I know. Right. And our, I was shocked. Um, but at the same time, it was like confirming this idea that I had that he loved me. Yeah. Like and, you were playing this fantasy out in your head and this was like, oh, maybe it's actually true. Like it was right, this, like I manifested yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> that I had sort of created the reality. And then that that week he asked me if I wanted to go to lunch and he took me to this place in Boston called the Blue Parrot. And I, you know, I had boyfriends in high school um, and we would like go to the diner or share a hoagie. Um, but this was like a real like grown up lunch, like a place where adults clink glasses and there's, you know, real cloth napkins and um, and. On the way back to the dorm, he pulled the car over real fast and he said, I'll, I'll be right out. And he like ran into this place and he came out with like his arms full of flowers, pink roses. And he handed me a bunch and then he threw a second bouquet into the back seat. And, you know, I said, thank you, but you know, my face must have been like, what, what's up with the flowers in the back seat? And he looked at me and said, flowers for my love and flowers for my wife. Man. And right. And wife, boy, that, that resonated. And, you know, and, that, and at that point was like that the first time you had known that he was married. Like, did you know he was married before he said that? I knew that he was going through a divorce supposedly um which eventually came true but but in this reality you know you wouldn't be buying flowers yeah, for a wife you're going through you're a divorce divorcing with. right yeah yeah right so you know i i didn't say anything but i did know like i had the conscious realization that he was going to break my heart um you know cuz those flowers were sort of the truth. Yeah, like you're kind of like doomed from the start. Like, yeah, this this weird like the age difference and the weird like mentor aspect of things. But yeah, then it's like there's literally another person in this in this situation. Right. It, it should have been the end, right? If I was older, smarter, whatever, but it, it ended up being the beginning, right? So you know, I. I cried myself to sleep that night though. I like reread the poem over and over. I threw the flowers in my dorm room trash. Um, yeah. And- like that's a, <laughs> it's such a move for him to think like, yeah, you're going to keep these flowers after seeing that there's another pair of flowers that are going to somebody. It was an interestingly subtle way of telling me something. Yeah, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's like, right. It was the- a very sort of passive aggressive adult way yeah, like that I'm, I didn't understand at 17. I'm showing you what this situation is. Right. In a way, yeah. Right, like this is where it's where it is. Um but 
you know, it ended up being the beginning and we had more lunches and more touches, more time alone. And then it started to be having lunch at his house when it was empty, which of course led to sex. And the whole relationship went on for a long time. It was really uh, passionate. And I consoled myself that his marriage was on its last legs, that he'd soon be divorced. I didn't ask him about those things, you know, but I certainly thought about it. And I wasn't used to the attention of an adult man. My boyfriends had been my own age. So everything that he did sort of loomed large and impressive, right? And he seemed to really like sort of showing me the finer things in life. I had grown up, you know, in Patterson, New Jersey, very poor, sort of lower working class. And I wasn't used to, you know, being wined and, and dined at all. Um, but that flowers for my wife moment, like stayed with me the entire time. Yeah. You're like simultaneously really into this person and being swept up in this kind of romance while knowing that like this can't work. Like this is doomed. I can't actually, yeah, like have any kind of success in this or happiness in this because there's always, yeah, there's this pair of flowers in the back seat that is constantly in here as much as I'm enjoying the things that are happening. And it, it really was, um, you know, a, a secret thing, right. As, as well, which obviously because he was, he was still married and, and, you know, I wasn't aware of it then, but you know, the age difference didn't matter to me. It obviously mattered to him that I was a work study student. Like, you know, then those things did not enter my mind at the time, but I knew I wasn't like central or real in his life. And it started to, to wear on me over, over time and kind of like the, the flowers, I started to like literally wilt. I had, um, you know, this was the first time I was away from home. Like a lot of people, I had gained the freshman 15 because of the unlimited cafeteria food. And, uh, I started to suspect that Sherman thought I was fat. Um, because he was starting to cancel some of our get togethers and I saw him flirt with some other women at the Hillel. And I, I just thought, okay, I'm losing him. Right. And despite the faults with the, the relationship. Yeah. Um, and so I started to like limit my food and to like write down every single thing I was eating and it got to the point where I pared down what I was eating every day to two things, one cup of purple yogurt and a single egg. Wow. That's, that's all you were eating in a day. That's all I was eating in a day. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, and I was shrinking, you know, I, I got down to 85 pounds and I was sort of bone thin and you know, my hip bones look like sharp corners. Um, but, you know, it, it certainly wasn't helping. Sherman became quite alarmed 
uh, with my shrinking body. And at some point he set up a session with a friend of his who was a psychologist or a psychiatrist and the whole thing was bizarre. I didn't even know why I was supposed to be there. I, I wondered if he thought I was suicidal, um, but I wasn't. I mean, I was certainly freaked out and depressed over what was happening there. Um, but you know, my shrinking, my anorexia scared him and he pulled away even more. And then obviously like, like any spiral, right. The, my schoolwork started to suffer. I got really homesick. It was hard to sleep probably cause I was starving. Um, you know, and that was the point I knew I had to get out of Boston and get away from Sherman, even though honestly, it was the exact opposite of what I really wanted in my heart. Cause I really believed I was, he was, he was my soulmate. He was the person I loved. Yeah. Which is so tough at that point. Cause again, yeah, you're, you're, you're so new to both like, yeah, as you said, like kind of having an adult and being in a relationship with an adult. And I guess like, yeah, the, the, at, at a certain point, there's definitely this dynamic that has been created, whether it's like purposeful on his account of like, yeah, this you feel like you need to do all of this stuff to be with him, right? Like you're not enough for him and that you had to start changing your habits to make sure you're enough for him, right? And it's kind of this thing where you just can't ever be enough when you start getting into that spiral, right? Like that's such Absolutely. a hard place to be in. And and in truth, I was, you know, a child. Yeah. Right. I was I don't actually think he thought knew I was 17, to be honest, because it's not normal for a sophomore to be 17. But he, he knew I was young. Right. But it yeah, still- yeah, he knows you're a student and at college. <laughs> and yeah. And uh, and he actually helped me get out of Boston. He figure out how to transfer um, to Johns Hopkins which I, that's, that's what I did, um, uh, because that was the school that he went to as an undergrad. Um, and he convinced me that because it was a smaller school and, you know, it might suit me. And honestly, I thought he was like, had become sort of very nervous about the whole thing and really wanted an exit plan. Yeah. There's a part of him that, that definitely cared about you, but a, another part of him that was like, I'm getting in a little too deep with this scenario. And it's hard to tell which is which at that point. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I I transferred to Hopkins, but I went home for the summer. And my mom, uh, very interestingly, did not... Nobody in my family said anything about my size. Like, I was... It was painfully obvious that there was a problem. But she very sort of quietly fed me back to health. It was sort of an unusual moment for my mother too. She was normally very, she'd be very pushy about food and, you know, she's Italian and food was like a huge thing for us, but she did a, it, it was very subtle and quiet and she never talked to me about what was wrong. And she certainly didn't know about Sherman. Yeah. Like the circumstances, she just knew that you were in this place that you needed help and she was right. able to help you in a way that didn't call out what was happening, I guess. Yeah. And I got back together with the boyfriend that I had before I went to Boston, <laughs> which was <laughs> helpful, Renee. Um, 
and he was my true first love. He was sort of a more normal love for me. And uh, I kind of forgot about Sherman when I went to, to Hopkins. It was a whole new experience. Uh, I moved into this utopian socialist commune, uh, <laughs> which was in a, a mansion that the was owned by the city of Owings Mills just outside, like just outside of Baltimore and paid $50 a month rent. And it was just <laughs> like a house full of like crazy characters. Uh, all adults, I was the only student, but everybody was vegetarians, but they were sort of all over the place. And I did work with the Black Panthers in uh, this community center in Remington, which is like adjacent to uh, Hopkins. So I got involved in all kinds of crazy stuff and was seeing Renee and Renee was going back and forth. So Sherman was sort of lodged out of my mind, but he came back into my life uh, 20, <laughs> 20 years later uh, when I was married. I had my two kids and they were young and I was, um, it was sort of right at that point where people were starting to be able to find each other on the internet when it was brand new. It was really like email was brand new. And, you know, he reached out by email. It was mid nineties. Um, oh yeah. So and, yeah, literally the like AOL email accounts. <laughs> exactly. Actually, literally. Yes, exactly. And we just started writing back and forth. Um, you know, and it got pretty fiery. Um, we were sending each other poetry. A lot of Pablo Neruda featured heavily. <laughs> um, but we were both married. Yeah, okay. So you're both married. You're both kind of like finding yourself in this, like, I guess going back to this old period of feelings in a much different time in your life. Exactly. And in a very non-threatening way, right? Yeah, because yeah, because you're just sending these like one another. Yeah, you're sending emails, um, you know. And now I was, you know, in my 30s, I was probably the age that he was. Yeah, at that back point. at the Boston University days, um, I was a mother. I was, you know, fully in my union career, um, and I didn't take it very seriously. And he was married now to somebody else, not to the woman that he was with back in Boston University. Um, but at some point, I had a union conference in Boston, and I reached out to see if he actually wanted to get together. And there was a lot of anticipation about what that would be like. You know, someone that you really had a pivotal life moment with. And it was kind of amazing. I mean, he looked exactly the same except for, you know, a little bit of gray. He was still handsome. Um, you know, we ate dinner. We drove around in the car catching up. Um, but one thing that was interesting is that, and maybe it's a thing that we do with ourselves to convince ourselves that the person is, is wrong and putting quotes around that is that I started to notice his flaws, like physical flaws, which you couldn't have told me when I was 17 that he had any, 
And <laughs> this is going to sound very petty and small, but I, I noticed that he had small bottom teeth as if he like <laughs> ground them down. Um, and we were parked on the street when I noticed it and I was driving and I was behind the wheel and he was in the passenger seat and he was like pontificating on something, um, which I'd always admired at this moment. I was sort of like doing that, like, uh, rolling my eyes without rolling my eyes. <laughs> um, and I'd lost the thread and I was looking at his teeth while <laughs> he was talking and it just suddenly like made him old and unattractive to me, even though that was not true that he was either old or unattractive, but, um, it was an interesting, it probably only lasted seconds, but it was enough to sort of help me sort of wipe away the, the feeling. Yeah, like that type of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you're kind of seeing the cracks, right? That, that like, maybe yourself at 17 just wasn't even looking for them. Right. And then you as in your thirties now is a little bit wiser and a little bit more aware of kind of maybe that's what that situation was and who this person is now. And yeah, like even, even if it was just such a small thing, it was just you being like, yeah, this isn't, they're just a person, right. You're like right. Hel helping to help exactly. yourself just even that out. Right. Exactly. And we ended up staying friends. We uh, saw each other occasionally. Um, yeah. So then it became this thing where it was no longer this like you're sending poems to each other, but you become you like that, that, that spell kind of broke over you where you're like, okay, I don't feel this need that I felt years ago, but I still really look up to and respect this person. Absolutely. And like talking to him and all that stuff. So it, the, yeah, the, the whole dynamic changes. And, and it was, uh, he moved from Boston to Tufts and my son ended up going to Tufts and he formed his own, uh, friendship relationship through me with Sherman. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which was also very odd. Um, but, and Cooper actually asked me at one point when we were up there, visiting on one of the many we went to go we went several times for tours and we stopped in to see Sherman in his office and as we left one of those meetings Cooper said something to me he said you know what there's something like between you two it's like both of you are like really flirting and I said no that's ridiculous <laughs> you're like I don't know how that to start to never, tell you what's no. going on <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case at all um but yeah so you know the friendship faded um and I we haven't spoken in in many years I did the math and he would be fairly old right now I did in anticipation of doing this story with you, look him up on the internet. <laughs> Went back to the internet, yeah. And actually, he still looks pretty good. <laughs> he, he's got a great head of hair and, uh, you know, he's still remarkably handsome and, you know, he's still wildly 
accomplished and brilliant. All of those things remained true, but nevertheless, we're not in touch. Yeah. Man. Is there, yeah, like, man, that's such a wild, it's so weird that like you reconnected after so many years and then like, yeah, I, it feels like there was probably something, there must have been something that felt like closure when you had that kind of reconnecting with him in person in a way that, I don't know if it was like satisfying or not, but to just to see that this person didn't have this almost like spell over you anymore, right? Like there must have been something satisfying about seeing those cracks in him and seeing the teeth and being like, yeah, I don't feel the way I did, right? Like did something in you feel... I don't like that. Yeah. How'd you feel in that scenario? Yeah. I think that the age is the key point because yeah. if the, if the initial relationship was when I was 30 and then it was the same period of time afterwards, it, it would be different than, I mean, you change as a human being so much more dramatically between 17 and 35 than you do between 30 and, you know, yeah. 60. Right. So you know, I was, I thought I was an adult at 17. I thought it was extremely worldly. Obviously that was not the case. And, uh, you know, but, you know, it was an important relationship in a certain way for me in that I, part of the attraction I realized in retrospect was the brilliance, right? And I, I wanted to be him, right? I wanted to to have that capacity intellectually. Uh, and I admired him. Um, so it was wrapped up in, in all of those things. It wasn't just sort of a simple attraction. And, yeah. you know, he deserved my admiration for, for all of those things still does, but you know, not for our relationship. Yeah. <laughs> certainly I, not for the backseat flowers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the other, cause the other thing I was going to ask is like, obviously you look, the way you talk about him, it's like fairly, you're, it's like, there's definitely like a fondness that you speak about him with, but mm-hmm. like, is there a part of you that, I I don't know, like, is, was there any part of you that feels he took something from you when this thing that happened when you were just like a kid? I actually feel like I should, but I don't because, and some of that may be my own hubris. You know, I, I, I feel like it was more about me in a way than him, right? It was my issues with my father and my family and, you know, control over my life and and my emotions. Um, And at 17, you know, you don't have the ability to regulate any of those things, especially regulate your emotions. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, there was, you know, I wanted that relationship with him. I certainly was smart and enough to have ended it after the flowers. If I, you know, I, I don't even want to give that. Maybe it's my issues with control, but I don't even want to give in retrospect, give him that control because, you know, there was nothing, I wasn't trapped. I wasn't, um, you know, other than by virtue of being a teenager, as opposed to being a full fledged adult. Um, 
but I never really did blame him. I probably should have, but I never really, really did. And sort of thought it was my issues. And he certainly never lied, right? So Yeah, I guess he was pretty upfront in the fact that <laughs> right away he said, hey, you're this other person. Uh but that's still, yeah, it's, 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 it's still dicey, right? Yeah. It's no, still, but it's, I, it's, it's still a dicey thing, you know, to look back on. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It's, uh, it was formative in certain ways, um, in that the, the person I ended up marrying, I actually stayed with Renee for several years, um, I actually transferred from Johns Hopkins to Rutgers in my last year of undergrad to be with Renee and move in with him because we were going to be together forever. And then, of course, we were not. Uh, and then I I met Larry, the, the man that I married and had a family with uh, while I was at Rutgers. So it all worked out. Yeah. <laughs> in the... <laughs> In the end. And Larry met Sherman. We actually ran into Sherman several times while we were all on family vacation in Cape Cod uh, because Sherman has a house on Cape Cod. And <laughs> we, it, the whole thing was very bizarre. Yeah, it's just like echoing through your life. Right, exactly. Well, that happens, right? I mean, yeah. people stay threaded through your life even if you lose track. There's something very delicious about finding the people from your youth. I think that's happening a lot right now that we're going through this yeah. pandemic. A lot of people are like making reconnections with people. I mean, this week I got like a call just to chat from my gynecologist <laughs> <laughs> who I consider a friend and he's uh you know he texted me and I was like well nothing can be wrong because I haven't been there in a year and he was like just catching up and oh, boy. <laughs> yeah uh cool well thanks so much for sharing Carla you're welcome um you're welcome. yeah if people want to find out more about what you do can they follow you on social media anywhere or yeah on Instagram at C-A-Cats, C-A-K-A-T-Z. And I have a website, which is just CarlaCats.com, which cool. has, you know, videos. and Yeah, I know there's like not active shows you can be plugging, but one day you'll have information there. I have a couple of virtual shows coming yeah. up, but. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is great. This is how we is how we fight for something that's right. Love Hurts is produced, hosted, and edited by Brian Berlin. Theme music by Mickey Hommel. Show art by Caroline Mallon. You can find Love Hurts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about it. You can find Love Hurts on Twitter and Instagram at lovehurtspod, and our website is lovehurtspod.com. I'm Brian Berlin, and this is Love Hurts. Love Hurts.